Hey church family, welcome to Sunday morning at Sailorville. My name is Jason Jackson, I'm pastor of discipleship at Sailorville Church. And my name is Meredith Jackson and I am the women's counselor here at Sailorville Church. Um, one of the things that we really, really love to do before the quarantine was have people in our home for a meal and to just get to know them a little bit better. And probably one of the things that we would use to help you get to know us a little bit better are some of these pictures on the wall. Yeah, we love these pictures because they tell a story, right? Every picture is worth a thousand words, as the saying goes. Uh, here's some of our favorites. This is our wedding day, June 9th, on uh, Lake Ontario in the year 2001. That was a little while ago. Uh, we still look exactly the same, honey. Uh, speaking of looking exactly the same, here's another picture that we love. It's uh, one of our transition from Pennsylvania to Iowa just uh, several years ago. And uh, babe, you've got blonde hair in that picture, but it is the same woman. This is Judah's mother and my wife, <laughs> Meredith. Same woman right here in front of us. And uh, also, here's a picture of Judah on, um, well, he's in kindergarten, and that's one of his school pictures. And uh, as most parents do, we threatened him within an inch of his life to take a good picture, you know, just to smile the exact right way. And we were completely surprised when it came back, and it actually looked half decent. Uh, we want to talk about pictures here this morning. Wherever you are in your living room or wherever you're watching this or joining us, uh, we want to tell you about some pictures that God has given us in his word to help us learn about who he is and who he wants us to be. And we're going to make really a beeline towards families, towards parents here, because that's what this passage does for us this morning. At the end of our message here in a couple minutes, we're going to come back and do a question and answer time. So during the message, uh, if you want to engage with us, interact with us on, online via Facebook, YouTube, or even uh, a texting number that we'll put up during the message, we'd love for you to do that. We're also going to take a couple minutes uh, to pause throughout the message and give you an opportunity to answer some questions, to talk it out with the people that are there around you, whether that's your family, your friends, uh, maybe a roommate there, uh, wherever you are, or maybe even some friends online during this message. Pause the message, talk about it, and then continue. As we, uh, as we continue in our worship together here online this morning with the Sayerville family. Welcome again. We're so glad to have you here in our home. Okay, welcome back, friends. Uh, we are ready to dig into our text for this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 13, and actually we're continuing our series from before our Easter Passover series um, in the book of Exodus. So it's really right after this Passover series. We're right in line with where we've been, and I'm really, really excited to be able to dig into this with you. Exodus chapter 13, and we're going to be in, in verses 1 through 16 this morning. We talked about pictures just a second ago uh, here in our home, and I want to tell you that the Old Testament is full of pictures, uh, full of pictures of the coming Messiah, full of illustrations of God, full of symbols, full of foreshadowing, and, and the New Testament is too. Jesus talked in parables. He spoke in parables when he taught many, many, many times and used pictures, and there's other pictures in the New Testament, and of course all through the Bible as well. In fact, Passover itself is one of the greatest pictures in the entire Bible. If, if you have the lamb, 
you have life. That's the picture of the Passover feast and that Passover celebration. We talked about that over the last several weeks here at Sailorville, and, and you know that. You know the images of the Passover are just very, very important to Jewish people, the Israelites, and of course to us in our Christian faith today as well. So the Passover, the, the picture there is if you have the lamb, you have life. Now, we jump back into the story in Exodus chapter 13 where, where Pharaoh has let the people go. He's let the Israelites go. They've just celebrated their very first Passover feast and, uh, and Pharaoh has had enough. He's let the people go and they left in a hurry. They left with uh, really hardly anything. They didn't pack like you and I may pack for a, for a long journey today. They took really just the clothes on their back. They took their cattle and their livestock. And oddly enough, they took a whole bunch of the, the, uh, the Egyptian silver and gold. God worked it out so that the Egyptians, as a parting gift, gave the Israelites a whole bunch of silver and gold. And that would come in handy a little bit later on their journey. And then they took one more thing, the Bible says. They took a, um, they took a lump of dough, of bread dough, without any leaven, and what they called a, a kneading bowl. They left in a hurry. They, they didn't have time to even put leaven in that bread so that it would rise. We'll talk about that in a second as well. But we catch this passage and our children of Israel story in, um, at the end of their first day of freedom. They're, they're camped out at a place called Sukkoth, which really means um, tents or, or even tabernacle. And here they are the first night after God has led them into freedom. Now I want you to think about a couple things here together. What kind of uh, conversations would have been happening in the families or in, in that nation as a whole that evening as they sat around their tents, maybe around campfires in, in different groups, probably up to two million people spread out there in that region right outside of Egypt. What kind of conversations, what kind of questions were kids asking? They were probably really uncertain. They had just come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, bondage to a master, building kingdoms for someone that, um, that they didn't even like. They weren't building their own structures. They weren't building their own pyramids. They weren't putting together their own bricks. They were working for someone else in slavery to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian kingdom. They, they were uncertain about what was going to happen in the future. They didn't know all the things that we know about their future. We read it in scripture and they didn't have that yet at this time. Obviously, they were just going through it. And so they didn't know how God was going to provide for them manna and quail. They didn't know how God was going to provide water for them, pure drinking water when they were thirsty, when they needed it. They didn't know that in the future, God was going to lead them by a pillar of cloud uh, in, the, in the daytime and a pillar of fire by night. They had no idea that they were about to come up to the Red Sea and, and miraculously God was going to spread that Red Sea wide open and they were going to walk in uh, and through that on dry land. They had no idea. So I can imagine that they were uncertain. Looking back, they were uncertain of their past and, and certainly looking into the future, they were uncertain. Maybe even a little disoriented. Now maybe you can imagine that because that's how you feel right now. We're in this time in our world and in our lives that is really unprecedented. I've never seen anything like this in, in my life with the COVID-19 crisis, the, the pandemic, really. It's a time of uncertainty. Maybe you're there this morning. 
we were talking with our small group, we call them cell groups here at Sailorville, just a couple nights ago, and, and we mentioned uh, every single couple was talking about the uncertainty that they feel in this time. Uncertain, what, what's going to happen if I get sick? Uncertain about finances. Uncertain about jobs. Uncertain about how to handle kids who are now at home. We're in an uncertain time. And so maybe we can understand a little bit of what those Israelites were going through. And so God interacts with them in Exodus chapter 13. And he comes to Moses and speaks to the children of Israel through Moses. And in this passage, he shows them two more pictures. Two pictures of who God is, of how he wants the Israelites to think about him, which is really, really important, isn't it? Those pictures come as reminders. They carry along with them questions that we'll see here in a second. But the pictures themselves tell a story. As we said a second ago, every picture um, tells a story of a thousand words, and they're very, very important. And so God gives two pictures this morning to the children of Israel and to us as well. And here's the first picture. It's a picture of the feast of the unleavened bread. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, starting in Exodus chapter 13. We're going to skip down to verse 3 and read through verse 10 and see if you can discover with me this uh, picture of the feast of unleavened bread and some of the reminders that God gives to Israel and then by extension to us this morning in this passage. Let's dive in. Verse 3 of Exodus chapter 13. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Catch that, right? Today in the month of Aviv you are going out. And verse 5, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. That service is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 6, Seven days shall you eat this unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there'll be a feast, a big party to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be, shall be seen with you. And no leaven at all shall be seen with you in all of your territory, in the entire region. Get rid of all the leaven. You shall tell your son on that day, when he asks this question, what's going on here? You'll tell him, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. So here, here's the picture. It's the feast of the unleavened bread. So God takes something that is a common object and he infuses it with extraordinary meaning. He takes this unleavened bread and he tells them, I want you to remember something very important about me when you see unleavened bread during this feast time. Let's walk through the passage again and see what those reminders are. Look quickly at verse 3. Moses, inspired by God, begins this uh, verse by saying this, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day. God wants Moses to share with the people something very important. He wants them to not just call to mind this day, not to just remember it as like a notification on their phone when it comes up, but it's a call to action. So not just a call to mind, this remember is a call to action. They came out of Egypt, out of the house 
of slavery. And as they look back to that time, God wants to remind them how they came out. So the remember here is really, really important. We need to acknowledge, Moses says to the children of Israel, who did this and why he did it and how he did it. Look at the next verse. By a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. So I can picture the conversations around the campfires and in the tents on that first night in Sukkoth. I can picture people looking at each other saying, how did this happen? Well, Moses wants to remind them that it was through God's strong and mighty hand. He says, no matter who you are or where you are or what time you remember this, I want you to remember that you had nothing to do with this escape. Israelites, it wasn't because of my great strategy, Moses says. It wasn't because we banded together and mustered all of our, our troops together and overthrew Pharaoh and his army. It had nothing to do with us, really. We were led into freedom by God's strong and mighty hand. That's how we got out of bondage. That's how we left Egypt. That's why we can have freedom from our slavery right now. We didn't have to do anything. Actually, we did have to do one thing. We just had to hold on to the hand of the one that was leading us into freedom. And my guess is that's probably where you are this morning. I want you to know from this passage, God wants you to know God is faithful. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, first of all, reminded their people, the Israelites, that God was faithful. And it keeps reminding them that he's faithful. Look at verse 4, today in the month of Aviv, he's saying, mark this day. Again, not just as an acknowledgement, not just as a mark on the calendar, but remember exactly what happened on this day, because this day defines you. You are no longer slaves. You are now free. You were in slavery for 400 years. You don't serve that master anymore. Now you serve a new master, the one who led you by his strong hand into freedom. Mark this day. There's a time marker there in verse 4. He tells us in, the, in a certain month in the springtime. Mark that day. And then verse 5, when the Lord brings you into the land. When the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, the promised land, he says you will keep this ceremony. Not if the Lord brings you into the land, not if he fulfills his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to your forefathers. Not if, but when. When God fulfills his promises, because he's faithful. Here's what you do. You celebrate this feast every single year. Once God leads you into the promised land, like he has told you he would, you celebrate, you remember, you remind yourselves and your children that God is faithful. God's future promises are as good as present reality. I can picture someone saying, how is God going to lead us into the promised land? There's so many places we need to go. There's so many people that are already living there that we'd have to get rid of. How? Are there any specifics? Moses, what's the strategy here? And Moses looks back and says, there's no timeline. There's no specifics. There's no five-step plan. I didn't come up with a great strategy or a graph. God's going to do it. Yahweh, the I am, he is going to be faithful. He always has and he always will. So now I want you to make it personal. It's not really a whole lot of good if we read scripture and don't apply it. If scripture doesn't transform our lives, 
we're missing a huge part of why the Bible was written. So let's make it personal today. Maybe you're struggling to break out of the chains of bondage, maybe slavery. Maybe sin is still holding on to you. We have a ministry at Sailorville called Gospel-Centered Recovery for a group of people that are, um, uh, well, they're, they're held in bondage by life-dominating sins. Our cell group leaders and cell groups walk through things like this all the time with, with men and women in their groups. Our counseling team is constantly dealing with people who are held in slavery to sin. They just can't seem to break those chains. Now, let me ask you something this morning from this passage. Where are you looking for your freedom? Where are you looking to find escape? Is it from God? Are you looking to Him to provide your freedom? Or, or are you looking in your slavery to sin, in those chains of bondage, are you looking to someone or something else? Let me tell you, like the children of Israel, there was nothing they could do to loose their bonds of sin and of slavery and the chains of addiction that, that, somehow, that some, sometimes hold on to us. There's nothing we can do either to escape from those on our own. We've got to grab a hold of that strong hand of God. Maybe you're here listening this morning, watching this in your living room, and, and you're feeling a little bit lonely. Maybe this whole quarantine, COVID-19 situation has you feeling really isolated, and you're lonely. And you're saying, I don't really have anybody to do this with. Grab a hold of that strong hand of God. One of my favorite songs right now is, uh, has this line, there's another one in the fire with you. It's really referring to um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown into the, the fiery hot furnace by Nebuchadnezzar when they wouldn't bow down to him. And Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty men come in and they, they realize that there's another one in the fire. There's another one in the furnace. And that one was the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. There's another one with you right now if you're feeling lonely. You're not alone. Grab a hold of the strong hand of God. He is faithful. Now listen, this passage and many others in the Old Testament make a beeline for parents. And so we're going to have just a couple little questions or, or exercises here for parents. If you're a parent listening to this, I want you to do one thing. Be open and honest with your kids. Make it personal. If you can't make this personal, you can't pass it along to them. And so explain to them stories from your own life where you've seen God be faithful. Help them understand as you look around your house, as you talk about stories in their lives, how God is proving himself faithful over and over and over. God is faithful in your life and he's faithful in the lives of your kids and the people around you. We're going to pause right now and ask another question. Talk about it. Maybe on Facebook as you're engaging with us. Maybe there with your family or whoever you're with this morning. Ask this question as we pause. So we've learned from the picture of the unleavened bread that God is faithful. He was faithful to the Jewish nation. He's faithful to us today. Here's the second reminder that the unleavened bread and that feast 
teach us this morning. It reminds us that God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. He always has and He always will. Look back in your Bible at verse 3. There's no leavened bread that shall be eaten. There's something important about leaven here in this passage. Again in verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And then verse 7 altogether says, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven will be seen in all of your territory. There's something really important here about leaven. It's got something to teach us about God and to remind us that he takes sin very, very seriously. Here's the deal with leaven. In, right before this feast began, families would uh, sort of conduct this ceremony. It was a little bit of a hide-and-seek game where the moms would go and hide a, a pinch of leaven, which actually is, um, well, I guess a, a common name for it today would be yeast. It's a, it's a rising agent that we would put in dough or in, in, uh, in baking. And so the mom would hide a couple crumbs of this yeast substance, this leaven, in their home maybe even around their house, and the dad would go around with a candle, a lantern, and the kids would follow him, and they would look for this leaven. And it's sort of like the, uh, sort of like the original Easter egg hunt, right? But this one actually had meaning. When they found the leaven, they were going to sweep it up and eradicate it, totally get rid of it. Why in the world would families do that? Why was leaven such a big deal? Well, because leaven at that time, and then especially later on in New Testament writings, came to be a symbol of of sin. Why? Because here's what leaven does. When you put a little bit of leaven or yeast into a, into a, 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 a piece of dough, that leaven begins to eat away at the sugar, the good stuff, I would say, in that dough. It begins to expand. It makes air pockets of gas as it, as it decays. It's actually a bacteria, sort of a microorganism that decays that dough. Now, we eat it because it rises and because it's good and because we add other things to that, but it eats away that dough from the inside. It's silent and it's secretive, but it does its job well. That's why leaven is such a great illustration for sin. God takes sin seriously. Sin eats away at us from the inside. Sin eventually will show itself on the outside. You can't hide it for very long. Leaven eventually is seen. It doesn't do its thing in secret for too long. Sin eventually, uh, even though it takes just a little bit to begin with, it eventually ruins the whole lump, just like sin ruins. And also, it's got to be completely and ruthlessly eradicated, eliminated, we have to, just like the Jewish people illustrated in this story, completely eradicate and eliminate sin from our lives. Because sin is by nature anti-God. God takes sin very, very seriously. And sin must be punished. Of course, the unleavened bread is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus, who would come later, the Messiah, who did come was the only one who's ever lived that never sinned. Jesus has no sin. He was that unleavened bread. We celebrate that at communion or the Last Supper in, in a similar way as our Jewish friends would celebrate the unleavened bread, but not seeing Jesus as come as the Messiah. And Jesus points to this unleavened bread. He says, this is my body as he celebrates the Last Supper with his friends. This is my body my perfect body. 
I lived a sinless life and I have a perfect body that can be sacrificed perfectly for you, he says. This is my body. So the Israelites, when they looked at the unleavened bread, they would, they would picture, first, God is faithful. And second, that, that God takes sin seriously. And friends, because we're sinners, we, we need a sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins also. God couldn't look at sin, can't look at us with sin. And so he looks at us through the unleavened bread, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, parents, make it personal. Be honest with your kids. When there's sin in your life, when it's appropriate, ask them to forgive you. Be a great example to your children. Husbands, be great examples to your wives. Wives, ask your husbands to forgive you. And parents, go to your kids. Explain when there's been sin in your life and ask them to forgive you. They will learn from your example and they'll grow up to be men and women who, who take sin seriously, just like God takes sin seriously. We're going to pause now and allow you to talk about it with whoever you're around. So we've seen the first picture that God gives the Israelites and, and really by extension gives us as well as that picture of the unleavened bread, the feast, the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. God is faithful and God has a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to sin. We have to completely eradicate. We cannot hide sin. It's got to be eliminated from our lives. God's faithful and he takes sin Seriously. Here's the second picture from our passage. It's, it's this ceremony of the dedication of the firstborn. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again, and then we'll jump down to verse 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and close with verse 16. And this reminds us something very important about God and about ourselves, too. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then drop down to verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you will set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you won't redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man or every son among your sons shall you redeem. And when in time, uh, when the time comes, your son asks you, what does this mean? You'll say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your head or as frontlets in your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. That first picture of unleavened bread reminds us God is faithful. He takes sin 
seriously. And here's the second picture. It's the ceremony of the dedication of the firstborn son. Now this is a little strange to us, but there's great application for us. Verses 1 and 2, the Lord says to Moses, consecrate to me the firstborn. In the Old Testament, this word consecrate is sometimes translated dedicate or, or commit. And what Moses, through God talking to him and him talking to the Israelites, is telling them is we need to dedicate, we need to acknowledge, we need to commit our firstborn sons, male, boys, and animal firstborns, to the Lord. What's the big deal about the firstborn? Well, firstborn is special. There's something special about the first, right? I remember the first time I shaved, that was pretty special. My dad came into my room and said, son, you're starting to grow a couple whiskers. And he handed me my first electric razor. And I've shaved with an electric razor ever since. It's a first. That was something memorable. Your first car is memorable. What kind of car was it? Where did you get it? Where did you go with it? Your first date, your first anniversary, those types of things are memorable. So firsts are just kind of inherently special. And actually, if you're a firstborn, you'll tell everybody else that you are special because you were born first, right? Here's another reason first is important, because it sets a precedent. And so to the Jewish people, the way they raised their firstborn sort of set a precedent for how they were going to raise others. And that's kind of true for us today, too. If you're raising a firstborn, you are discovering things, you're learning things. And, and in some ways, the way you raise that child is going to set a precedent for how you raise the rest of your kids if you have them. But most importantly, the, the consecration of the firstborn was a reminder that God gives us everything we have. God gives us everything we have. The passage tells us that when the child comes to the father and says, why did this happen? Why are we doing this? Why are we consecrating the firstborn? That the father says, it's a reminder that God's grace is the only reason that I have you, firstborn son. It's a reminder that during the 10th plague, when, when God uh, passed over all the homes of the Israelites that had the blood of the lamb uh, spilled, painted, poured on the doorposts of that home, when he passed over those homes, that it was only by God's grace that the firstborn in those homes was saved. And so the consecration or the dedication of the firstborn reminds fathers, mothers, reminds firstborns and other siblings that everything that they have is because of God. There was actually a financial transaction that went on here. Right after this son was born, the parents would take him to what became the temple, really, take him to the priests, and, and, and he would, uh, the father would actually buy back the son from the Lord, symbolically. There was a financial transaction there. They actually, he actually bought his son back for five shekels. And the priest would say, this son is now entrusted to you. He's God's boy, but you have him sort of on loan while he's here. He's God's boy, but you get to borrow him while he's here on earth. See, everything we have is from God. Even firstborn animals were seen as God's property, first of all. And there was a redemption process that happened with them. So every firstborn son or animal was a regular reminder that everything that the Jewish people had, everything from their animals all the way to their kids, everything came from God and that they needed to dedicate all of those things 
to God. See, God owned everything that they had. And that's true for us today too. God has entrusted us with finances, with talents, with friendships, with our homes, with our families, with our stuff. And it's our responsibility then to really give it back to God, to dedicate, to commit even our kids to the Lord. Dedication was the expectation with every single Jewish firstborn. Hannah did this with her son Samuel when she said, God, please give me a son. I'll give him back to you. And she did that, gave him to to God, and, and Eli raised Samuel. Even Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, dedicated Jesus at the temple just days after he was born. Now listen, this, is not, this dedication of your children is not, a, it's not a guarantee of salvation. That's not what we're saying this morning, and Scripture never says that. When parents dedicate or commit their kids to the Lord, that's not a guarantee that that child will come to know Jesus as his or her personal Savior. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and other places in Scripture that every single person needs to by grace, through faith, accept Christ as their personal Savior. And no work by me, by my parents, or by anybody else can ever earn my place in heaven. That's a relational transaction that God has already made. At Sailorville, we value worship. This is really what we're talking about here. In worship, we acknowledge that everything that we have is God's, and so we are really just stewards of it. We say it this way in one of our core value statements, God alone rules my world, so I will point to Him in everything that I do. It's really a a statement of surrender. I surrender every moment. If everything we own is really God's to begin with, we really don't have an option. Dedication or surrender or consecration to God of all of our stuff is really the only option that we have recognize that it's not yours, it's God's to begin with. And so for parents, here's a pointer for you. Help kids understand that they can give to God first. Hold on to their stuff, hold on to their money, hold on to their things loosely. Share it with others, and first and foremost, share it with God. We're going to pause for another two minutes and let you talk about it with people around you. So the dedication of the firstborn was was really a picture that God designed perfectly for His children, the Jewish people, and, and as we read this, a picture for us to look into as well, and a reminder that everything that we have is given to us by God. And it also reminds us here in this passage that God provides a redeemer. In verses 13, 14, and 15, that, that word redeem or redeemer is, is used three times. In fact, it's a very, very important concept in Scripture, and this is one of the first times that we see this in the Bible written out like this, redeeming, redemption, redeeming something else is so, so very important. Imagine, imagine a firstborn son watching his father go to the, 
to the temple one day. Go to the priest with a donkey, a firstborn donkey, as scripture says, and, and redeem that donkey with a lamb. Hand the priest a lamb to be sacrificed so that he could then take away, go back home with that donkey, redeeming an unclean animal with a lamb. Imagine being that son. Dad, why are we doing this? This donkey is almost worthless. It's an unclean animal. We can't really do anything with it except put stuff on it or put stuff behind it so that it can plow or carry something. And the father looking at the son and saying, we need to acknowledge that everything that we have is God's and also that this thing, even though it's unclean, needs to be redeemed and bought back. And the son might say to the father, why did we use a lamb? Well, son, the lamb is another picture that God gives us to remind us that, that, uh, that only he would send his son to be the one and only perfect sacrifice for us. And we see that all throughout scripture, that the lamb is what saves us. The blood of the lamb, being redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Whether we are an unclean donkey or someone living in 2020, we have to be redeemed. So that son would look at his father and say, so, so my sins need to be redeemed as well? And the father would say, yes, son, just like this donkey needs to be redeemed, you need to be redeemed. Just like, just like our father Abraham walked up the mountain to give his own son to God as a sacrifice after God asked him to, and God provided a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for him. That is what Jesus did for us. When we look back at our lives, if we have accepted that substitutionary, redeeming sacrifice for our lives, then you are part of God's family. One day, Jewish fathers would look at their sons. One day, they would say, God is going to provide a lamb that will cover the sins of the entire world. And we know that that one day happened. And that one day happened through the substitute on the cross, Jesus, the only perfect lamb, the only one that was blemish-free, the only one that had no leaven, the only one that could redeem us. God gave Jesus life to buy us back. So God provides a redeemer. Now here's where we make it personal. You and I need a redeemer also. Just like that donkey, we're, we're unclean. We can't do anything on our own. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it's a familiar verse to some of you. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. We all need to be bought back. Romans 6, 23, the wages of our sins, the, the payment, what we earned, what we owe because of our sin is death. We owed it. We deserve an eternity without God, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Despite our sins, because Jesus came and paid that redemptive, sacrificing death for us, we can spend eternity in heaven when we accept that sacrifice of his death and then his resurrection into our lives and live for him. God redeemed us by sending the perfect lamb, the sinless bread, Jesus Christ. Not so that we could live for ourselves, but so that we could dedicate our own lives, give our lives completely to him, the one who bought us 
with a price. The New Testament would pick up on this, um, this idea of redemption. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you've been bought with a price. That's the idea of redemption. He hearkens back to these ideas in the Old Testament. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Live for him because you are not your own. You've been redeemed, Christian. And then Paul again in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 would say, Surrender your life in an act of worship on the altar to Jesus. Don't be conformed to the way the world works but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are not your own. You have been bought back. You've been redeemed through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. So for parents, if you're sitting with kids, if you're going to talk to your kids on the phone this week sometime, help them understand this. You have a salvation story if you know Jesus as your personal Savior. Tell them your story. This passage is all about parents talking to their kids about the pictures of God. Do your kids know your salvation story if you have one? Talk about it. Tell them your story. We're going we're gonna to take a quick break here so that you can, you can even begin to dip your toes into the water of your salvation story. If you haven't accepted Christ, if you don't have a salvation story, maybe today is the day that you contact us or somebody that knows Jesus and ask them how you can do that. Let's pause Talk about it with the people around you. So we've talked about this passage as a teaching tool for parents, Jewish parents, to help their kids who are asking questions. Hey, what's going on here with this unleavened bread? Hey, hey, Dad, Mom, what's happening with this uh, with the ceremony of dedicating the firstborn son and the firstborn animals? What's going on here? And they're two amazing pictures. The Old Testament is full of them, and and these two remind us of, of us of some really important things about God. Number one, that He's faithful. The unleavened bread tells us that he is faithful. The unleavened bread tells us that he takes sin seriously. And then that dedication of the firstborn reminds us that everything that we have comes from God and that he has sent a redeemer because we needed a redeemer. We could not redeem ourselves. You know, parents we're told all throughout the Old Testament to pass down the lessons about God to their kids so that the next generation would know. And Judges chapter 2 verse 10 has one of the most um, concerning, one of the most chilling verses that I've read in the Bible. And this is what it says, There arose another generation after them that did not know the Lord. Judges, just a few books after the one that we're looking at here, uh, potentially just a few generations after the one that we're talking about right now, that generation did not know God, did not obey Him. And why is that? It's probably because that generation's parents disobeyed God. It's probably because that generation's parents didn't pass on the lessons, the reminders, the pictures of God. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is perhaps the most important thing about us. This week, 
parents this week, people who are listening, friends from Sailorville and all around the world, what are you thinking about God? That could potentially be the most important thing that you think this week. And so look around you. Look at your home. Look at your yard. Look at your neighborhood. Look at your friendships. Look at your stuff. Look at history. Look at what's happening right now and see the pictures of God and realize who He is by how He's reminding you of Himself. The pictures around you tell a story of who God is and who He wants you to be. And parents, don't miss the opportunity to show your kids to help shape what they think by showing them who God is and how important a relationship with Jesus Christ is. What they think about God, the pictures that they have when they picture God, may be the most important thing that you help them understand. So take time even this week to do that. Let's be a generation of parents, of grandparents, of aunts and uncles, and of kids that pass along the stories of the truth of God, the gospel, that pass along theology to the next generation so that the next generation might know.